Good morning, everybody. How's everybody on this beautiful morning? Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get things uh, started here with the class this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just ask your blessing upon it. Uh, Father, as we uh, lead into uh, Holy Week and, and just leading up to Easter, Father, we're uh, just uh, so thankful for everything that you've done in sending your son, uh, Jesus, to die for our sins. And, and Father, help us to, uh, to focus on that and think about that throughout this week and, and just uh, shower you with the love and appreciation that you deserve. And so, Father, we just ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Turn in your Bibles um, to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be moving around a little bit because I want to close out our discussion on the second coming. Uh, and then we are going to try to do the first six verses of Revelation 20 uh, this morning. So just a, a brief review of where we were at last week. We were talking about the, what the Old Testament says about the second coming, trying to piece together uh, some of the, the, the pieces. Uh, you know, as we discussed a few weeks ago, uh, the New Testament, you know, it, it, it's something clearly that you know, it's been a Christian belief for as long as there have been Christians that Christ was going to come again. Uh, but the New Testament, it's funny, it paints with kind of a broad brush. It doesn't really fill in a whole lot of details about it. And I think really one of the reasons for that is because, you know, the, the, the Bible that the New Testament church had up, up until, you know, the, the canon of, of Scripture was, was completed they had the Old Testament. I mean, the early church, they, they didn't have the New Testament. We forget that sometimes. Uh, you know, we have an advantage over them in some ways. We have the completed New Testament. Uh, they were in the process of, that was being written during the early years of the church. And so they had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has many, many, many references. I mean, like, incredible amount of references to the second coming. Uh, now, they wouldn't have called it the second coming. They would have just called it the first coming. They didn't know there was going to be two. Uh, they didn't know Jesus was going to come as, as a suffering servant first and die for their sins and then come as, as the conquering king. They just thought that was all one thing, okay? And so, uh, you know, there's many, many references to that. And, and next week, uh, or not next week, Next week is, is Easter week. We will not be having Sunday school. We'll be eating breakfast instead, okay? Um, yeah, so come and eat breakfast. Uh, but in two weeks, uh, we will actually take a, a week and look at what the Old Testament says about the, the millennial kingdom because there's also just tons of references to the millennial kingdom. You're going to see the New Testament. We're going to look at that today. It has like half a dozen verses. The Old Testament has tons to say, and so we'll take a look at that, uh, you know, in, in two weeks. So what we tried to do last week was kind of fill in some of those gaps by looking at what the, the uh, Old Testament says about the second coming. And, and so we, we left off uh, just kind of a brief review. We see that the, the Antichrist armies are gathered and, and in the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, place called Armageddon, uh, and, and, and they attack the, the, the Jewish people who, who are there at, at, at the end, time, end times, and it, it seems to be a, at least a two-pronged attack from what we saw in the verses in the Old Testament, like some go toward Basra, uh, and some go toward Jerusalem and attack the Jews in both places. Um, and possibly fighting in the mountains uh, and, 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 and in the valley of Jezreel, though we're not 100% sure about that. We also looked at the verses talking about the need for the repentance of the Jewish people, uh, that both Old and New Testament seems to stress the need for, because of, the, of their rejection of Christ as their Messiah, the need for them to, uh, to repent. It, it's, it's, it's fascinating that we're doing this class today uh, on this particular day, um, because what, as Jesus, it, we talked about this a little last week, but what, what they, they, they kind of called out to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem in his triumphal 
entry, entry um, they, they were sing, singing part of, of the Psalms of Hallel, uh, the Psalms of Praise, uh, and, and they, they were a messianic psalm, something they were looking forward to, to the coming of their Messiah. And, and, and as they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save now, you know, save or deliver. Uh, save us now, save us now. You know, the Jews who were under, you know, the, the foot of Rome saw Jesus as their Messiah for just that brief period of time. Save us now, save us now. That was the great Jewish expectation of what their Messiah would do. He would come and he would cast off their, their oppressors and set up his kingdom on earth and, you know, would rule from, from that point on. And we'll discuss that, the time period here in a little bit. It was so strong in the Jews, I want you to think back to the Gospels to, to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, who knew who Jesus was, he's the one who sees Jesus coming and, and says, you know, here comes the Lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world. I have to, to decrease while he has to increase. I'm not worthy to, you know, to, to unstrap his sandal. Like all these things. He knew exactly who Jesus was. But you remember after he's arrested and he's in jail for a few days. And he sends his followers to Jesus and he says, ask him, if, is he, are you really the one? Now what made John doubt all of a sudden? Because in the Jewish mindset when Messiah came, John shouldn't have been in Roman prison. You know, I mean, Jesus, the, the Messiah was supposed to cast off Rome. And here's John sitting in a prison looking out through the bars going, now wait a minute, where's the Messiah? I thought Jesus was going to do all these things. Remember Jesus' answer? He didn't, he, he didn't send any kind of debate or anything back. He just told John's followers, he says, tell him what you see. The lame walk, the blind see. You know, tell him the things I'm doing, tell him the things you see, there's no doubt I'm the Messiah, basically. You know, I'm doing things only the Messiah can do. You know, and, but that's how strong that mindset was within, you know, within the Jews, that even the godliest men, Jesus himself said, there's, there's never anybody walked the earth greater than John, and yet John doubted. Because it didn't fit the mindset that, that had, was there from the Old Testament. They just didn't get there had to be two comings. So that's what we've been kind of doing is trying to fill in these gaps here. So we see the, 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 the armies of Antichrist gathered, you know, attack um, the need for Israel's repentance. And, and, and we read verses about Israel's future redemption just to kind of catch us back up to what we, what we were there last week, I want to read just two uh, passages that we read. Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse 10. We spent a lot of time in Zechariah last week, and, and, and we will again today. We'll be back in Zechariah, because uh, a lot of the, the passages dealing with the, old, uh, with, with the second coming are in Zechariah. Um, Zechariah 12, 10 through chapter 13, verse 1. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. Now remember, this is, this is written long before Jesus you know, ever came onto the scene. R roughly 400 years plus. And yet look what it says. They will look on the one who they have pierced. Uh, and, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. In other words, like a parent who, who, who has an only child and lost their child or, or someone when they lose like their first, their first son, their first child, and how, how much they're, they're in grief and mourning. Jesus said that's what it'll be like for, for the Jews that are left in that day when they are kind of under attack, they're, they're going to think back of what, you know, what they had done to, to their Messiah and they're going to, to mourn for him and, and, and long for him. Uh, it, it, grieve for him bitterly as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem 
uh, will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The, the land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shammai and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. In other words, all of Jerusalem. It covers the king, the, the, you know, the, the, the priest, uh, the prophets, that, you know, that it kind of covers every segment of, of Jerusalem. Uh, all the people that are essentially left at that point will kind of collectively start to mourn for, for their lost Messiah. And, and then chapter 13, verse 1, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. We also uh, took a look at, at, at uh, Romans chapter 11, where Paul seems to be referencing these, this same event in Romans 11, 25 through 29, uh, when he says to the, to the believers at Rome, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in, in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, uh, or uh, another way of, of translating that would be, and, and kind of when that happens, um, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn God, godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. <coughs> he is uh, quoting there, i believe from Isaiah and, Jer and Jeremiah at that point. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, speaking to the Gentiles, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for the, uh, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Ju uh, and and uh, we can stop there and just, you guys get the idea. Um, you know, uh, a time for the repentance uh, of, of Israel uh, at, a, at, a, at a time at the, at the end times. So that kind of gets us up to where we left off today. So the second coming itself, the fighting, you know, what's going to happen? So as I said, we seem to have an attack on both Basra and Jerusalem from the Antichrist. Let me read a couple passages about Basra first. Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 7. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. They, he will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked by their blood. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment upon Edom. And Edom is, is what is now southern, uh, kind of the southern portion of Jordan. Okay, it was the kingdom of Edom at the day of this. And that's the area that Basra is in. He continues on, it, he says, it will descend in judgment on Edom, the people I, I have totally destroyed. The sword of the, of the Lord is bathed in blood, it is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. In other words, uh, animals that are usually used for sacrifice. And that's the point, this is, God has a sacrifice, and that's, in fact, that's what he's about to say. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom, uh, the wild oxen will fall with, with, with them, the bull uh, calves and the great bulls, their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat. So there's going to be a fight one day in Basra, in the land of Edom, uh, and God sees it as, as a sacrifice. Remember, we read the other passage where he says, gather together all you armies, all you nations, come upon Israel. You, you, know, you want to fight? Come on, fight. You come on and, and, and you gather here and, and I've got a sacrifice uh, in, in the land of Israel. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 63 verses 1 through 6. And, and we, we read this once uh, before, but I want to read it again. Uh, 
and remember, this is kind of a call and answer. Uh, this is where we talked about a couple, uh, couple weeks ago. It's kind of like a call and answer. Uh, you know, it's, it's Isaiah sees uh, someone coming from the direction of Basra, and, and he begins by asking this question. Who is, who is this coming from, Bos, uh, from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? And then we, we have uh, the answer. Uh, he, uh, he continues on. He says, who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? And we have the answer in, at the end of verse 1. It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Then he asks another question. Why are your garments red? Like, like those of one treading the winepress. And then we have, again, the Messiah's answer. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down with my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was appalled that no one gave, gave support. A little bit of sarcasm. You know, uh, of course nobody gave support. He didn't need any support. That, that's kind of the point he's driving home. No one gave support, so my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, and in my wrath I made them uh, drunk and poured their blood on the ground. So we see there's several passages, uh, particularly in Isaiah, where Isaiah is looking to uh, the end of time and the coming of the Messiah to Basra in Edom, where he has a, a sacrifice of, of essentially the armies of the Antichrist that he's going to destroy, okay? And, and, and that's kind of a, if you're looking for kind of a, a, a New Testament kind of a, a reference of that, think back to we talked about how the, the, the blood of the it would be as high as the horse's bridles. And we talked at that time that, you know, there's two ways people interpret that. One is there's like just going to be this giant river of blood, but that's probably not the accurate way of interpreting it. It's probably more that, that over that, that, that particular distance, the blood will spatter up uh, and, and, you know, as high as like the, the, the bridles of, 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 a, of a horse. Uh, and so uh, the slaughter will be great. And as we read before, Jesus, Jesus isn't going to have to draw a sword. All he's going to have to do is, is breathe the words from his mouth. With the, the breath of his mouth and the words of his mouth, uh, he, he will destroy. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we, we, it seems to be that that's the first kind of place, you know, in his second coming that he hits, is, is Basra and, and saves the people uh, there in Basra. No, it yep. It, it just seems to be that it it God chose it as kind of the perfect place for his people to hide during the Antichrist's reign of terror. Um, and, and again, that's, that's kind of the main reason that people go with Petra out of the two different possibilities for what Basra is. The reason people pick Petra is because of the way it's just, you know, anybody who, and, and I, I think this is correct, so if, if, if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll give a, you know, a, a you know, whatever you would call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you've ever watched India, the first Indiana Jones movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, you know, as, as they're going to uh, the place where the Nazis have the, the Ark of the Covenant, and remember they go through, I think in the movie they called it like the Valley of the Crescent Moon or something like that, and it's like this real narrow valley that only like a couple horses at a time could get through. I don't know if you guys remember that scene, if you've ever seen that movie or not. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, I believe that was actually the entrance to Petra. Yeah. I think they filmed that in the entrence to Petra. Third movie, okay, all right. Um, but that gives you an idea of what it looks like. You know, it, it was a very narrow, easily defended place, and a place that the Jews could go hide, you know, and, and kind of be defended during the time of the Antichrist. 
And as we discussed before, the time of the Antichrist, I mean, if we think world anti-Semitism has been bad up to this point, it will be nothing like what the Antichrist will unleash on the world at the end of time. And we'll see more evidence of that here in just a, just a bit. So that seems to really be the only reason. Uh, as, far as, I'm, as far as I know, there's not a whole lot of other references to Basra. There's a lot to eat them because they were an enemy of, of Israel and, and essentially cousins to, to the Jews. But there's, as far as Basra itself, there's very few references in the Old Testament to Basra. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. It went, they were the descendants of Esau. And just like Esau uh, and his brother, uh, you know, they were in constant battle with Esau and Jacob, so, so were their descendants. Interestingly enough, Esau and Jacob mended their fences at the end of their lives, but their people never did. And, and so, uh, yeah, the, the Edomites were a constant thorn in, 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 in the Israelites' side. Um, but there's very few references to Basra, so it just seems it's a perfect place uh, for God's design. Um, so it appears that that is likely the first, uh, the first place that Jesus kind of attacks the armies of the Antichrist. Now remember, uh, I just want to point this out, that he is coming from heaven kind of on the clouds at this point. Uh, you know, it, it's, this isn't like teleportation where he's, boop, you know, and, and there he is. You know, it's not Star Trek. Uh, you know, it, it, we're told actually in, in Acts one, and let me uh, actually turn there. Acts one, uh, verses nine through eleven. His disciples are, you know, this is right after Jesus has gone up to to heaven, like right in front of them, uh, and of course they're sad and upset and 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 concerned. And it says after after uh, he said this, uh, it, you know, Jesus, you know, telling them to go out and be witnesses. Um, you know, to all the, the world, essentially. He was taken up before their very eyes, uh, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven." Uh, so, you know, the disciples were told, just like you saw him going up into heaven and the clouds ultimately hid him from your sight, one day it's going to reverse. And you're going to be looking into the sky, and, and as, as the one passage we just read, there's probably going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of passages talk about how there's going to be a lot of signs in the heavens, like just, you know, awful kind of, uh, you know, things happening in the atmosphere and in the heavens, and people are going to be looking up into the sky, and all of a sudden, through those clouds, is going to kind of the, the Son of, of God is going to break through those clouds on his way back to, to the earth, and people will see him come. Um, so, so it appears that, uh, that Basra may well be the first place that he, uh, that, that he comes to, though it doesn't appear he actually sets foot on Basra. He doesn't have to, he just speaks and defeats the, the, the enemies of, of himself and of his people uh, there in, in Basra. The second place we see is, uh, is Jerusalem. And, and we just want to go back to Zechariah again. Now, in, in Zechariah 12, and we read this you know, last week when, when the, the, the Jewish people are surrounded by the armies of the Antichrist and, and the fight breaks out, God will empower the Jewish people to fight very bravely. In fact, they will, you know, exact a, a terrible price on the Antichrist armies. Uh, you know, it, it uses several different uh, ways to, de to describe them. It says they'll be like an immovable rock, and anybody that tries to move it, they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to injure themselves. In other words, like you ever try to move a big rock and, and like, you know, you throw your back out or you get a hernia or something like that? He, that's what the Jewish people, he said, are going to be for the Antichrist. You know, they're, they're going to be a pain in, in the back, basically, a pain in the rear end to the Antichrist and his armies. 
Uh, he, it also describes them as a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch amongst the sheaves. God is going to give them the ability to fight very bravely uh, and, and really take a, a, a big toll on the Antichrist armies. But the Antichrist armies, you know, would appear to be maybe the, the largest force ever gathered on the face of the earth. Uh, and they're just too much. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, as, as we went on to, uh, to read, and, and actually let me just kind of read that again, that the, the cost of this to Israel, it says in, in chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, awake sword against my shepherd, against the, uh, the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like, gold, like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is our God. Now, just to put some perspective to that, in, in World War I, uh, Hitler's atrocity against the Jewish people basically wiped out one-third of the, the Jewish population of the earth, which is just atrocity almost beyond imagining. This seems to suggest that at, at the very least in, in Jerusalem, but more likely worldwide during the entire campaign of Antichrist uh, over the last three and a half years of the tribulation, that the Jewish people will re be reduced by two-thirds. So the Bible says there will be a remnant, but the, the, it will be just a, a small amount of what it was before the time of, of the Antichrist. Um, Hitler, in many ways, was really kind of an a, a, a archetype for the Antichrist and, and, and what, he, uh, what he did. And as evil as he was, he, he was just empowered by Satan, who is the same one who empowers empowers the, uh, the Antichrist. And so uh, a terrible, um, you know, as valiantly as, as they fight, it, it appears that uh, in the end, if, if God doesn't step in, they would not be able to survive. Yeah, Dale. Yeah, I believe he will be. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's no evidence that any more of that line. Um, now, you know, I, I shouldn't say that. There will probably be Jews who are alive at the time who may be of the line of David. We won't know because nobody really knows what line they're of at this point. Um, so there's probably Jews alive today that are of the line of David. Um, but, but Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant where one will, uh, descendant of David will sit on the throne and rule forever. Uh, th that, that is clearly the Messiah. Uh, and, and so Jesus will be the ultimate in the line of David. Yeah, the fulfillment of, of that great covenant. Um, we see a, a terrible price uh, is, is, is exacted uh, for, um, for Israel. Uh, but, but I want to read uh, uh, Zechariah 12, uh, verse 9, uh, you know, kind of right at the end of that passage where they fight bravely. He says, on that day I will set uh, out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Uh, again, pointing to that being the moment where these nations are come up against Jerusalem, this is what was prophesied, and God will set out to destroy them. And, and even though the cost will be great um, you know, for, his, uh, for his people, ultimately he, uh, he will come back and rescue uh, Israel. Um, in fact, if you go on and you read we, we just read verses 10 through 13 about that will be on that day that, that you know, God will pour out that spirit of supplication uh, onto uh, Israel. And so it, it appears that, that, you know, the Antichrist will go try to wipe out the Jews who are in Israel, some up in the mountains of modern-day Jordan and the others in Jerusalem and the mountains around it, and he will set out on a campaign to destroy them. Uh, and and at, at some point in that time, uh, you know, the remnant that is left, and for whatever reason, we don't know, other, other than it's, it tells us in verse 10 of, of chapter 12, I will pour out 
on the house of David and, and, uh, and its inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Uh, really, the work of the Holy Spirit is, 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 is the best you know, we have as far as what will happen, that, that the Holy Spirit will so be working on the hearts of that remnant that are still alive. Remember, for, you know, the, the, at the midpoint of the tribulation, you had the two witnesses that had been, uh, you know, risen up, the two great prophets uh, that, that were testifying uh, on behalf of Jesus Christ. And you had the sealing of the 144,000 Jews who, who many believe were sealed to be evangelists. Uh, and you had you know, all these people being saved uh, in the midst of all the, the torment and the, the, the murder and, and the, tr- the atrocities of the second half of the tribulation, you, all, you are also seeing a great many people saved. That the Holy Spirit, and this kind of gets to something we talked about, Tim, that, that the Holy Spirit is still at work. And, and, and there's a witness there, you know, and, and it, largely a Jewish witness of people who come to Christ during the, the, the tribulation and start preaching essentially, you know, Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, at the end when, when their backs are essentially against the wall and their, sal- and their salvation, their physical salvation, their physical uh, existence is, is threatened, you know, the Holy Spirit pricks their hearts and, 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 and they come to a point of, of confessing their, their sins and calling for their Messiah. Um, like it says at the end of, of uh, or says in, in uh, verse 9 of chapter 13, uh, this third I will put into the fire, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. Uh, you know, there will be that time. And I want to continue reading then in, in chapter 14, Verses 1 through 5. It says, A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend uh, to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So basically, you see, uh, you know, Israel with their backs against the wall, as I said, and Christ comes back. Uh, the, the, the confession essentially takes place, the call for their Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Save us now. Really, truly fitting at this point. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. And Christ comes. And as he sweeps down through the sky, he destroys their enemies in Basra, <laughs> destroys their enemies in Basra, and he heads to Jerusalem, and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he causes such a cataclysm that it splits the Mount of Olives in half. Literally, I mean, it, it, it is something I can't even really wrap my mind around. It's something, I mean, we've all seen pictures of the aftermath of earthquakes and things like this. That's probably the best way we can describe this as an earthquake, but it's not even really that. It's, a, it's just a miracle. It is, it, is, it is God intervening in history and the creator God essentially recreating. And he takes that mountain and he sets his feet upon it and he essentially takes the, the north half of it and it goes that way and the south half goes this way and he creates a new valley and the people that are, are left fighting in Jerusalem at the time flees through the valley he made for them. He makes a way out and then he fights. And, and as we've seen again in, in many passages, he doesn't have to lift the sword. All he has to do is speak. All he has to do is breathe. And as it says, he will fight that day like he fights in a day of battle. I, you know, I promise you, I did not plan 
<laughs> for, to get to this point in this study for the last two years on this day. But boy, is it fitting. Yeah, evidently God planned it. Because that's the thing that he's been longing for for all this time. That's the thing he told Jerusalem as he looked down on it and said, how long I wanted to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Now you're left desolate. You won't see me anymore until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that day will come. And he will defeat his enemies. So that is essentially a synopsis of what the Old Testament says about the second coming. There are many, many other verses. Many of them are controversial. People debate whether they're talking about the second coming or if they're talking about the time of, uh, of the Babylonian uh, captivity. I did not, on purpose, include any of those verses. These are basically verses here that there is a pretty strong majority opinion on these are pertaining to the second coming. Uh, and so that, that, and that's just a, a, a portion of them. It gives you an idea of what the, the Old Testament teaches on the second coming. All right. We've had the second coming. And what happens next? Turn back to the book of Revelation, or if you have been keeping your finger there, uh, good on you. Uh, let's look at, we're going to try to look at verses one through six. I want to break it down into two sections, verses one through three and, and verses uh, four through six. So let's just read verses one through three. Second coming has taken place, and, and now this is what John sees. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So let's deal with those three verses first, okay? One, who is this angel? Well, we don't know. There is no way to know. There's been immense speculation upon who this angel is. Some have even said possibly Christ. Um, but we, we just don't know. There, there's no way of, of knowing for sure that no name is ever uh, given. Uh, it, it's simply an angel with great authority, great power, authority given to it to be essentially the keeper uh, of the abyss and, and, and to chain um, Satan. Uh, again, you know, some might speculate Michael, the archangel, but again, we don't know, and it seems more likely if it was Michael, it would have been named because most of the time when we see Michael come onto the scene, he is named. Uh, so it's, it's just, you know, we just don't know. There, there's no way of, of knowing uh, who this angel is. The, the one thing that strikes me most about these first three verses is the powerlessness of Satan. You know, the Bible portrays Satan in several ways. He, he is seen as a great foe for us and is very powerful. Uh, you know, we're told we are not to make any kind of, uh, kind of railing accusation. I always get kind of a little nervous. I'm flipping through the channels and I come across like, you know, bunch of people up on a stage on, you know, and they're like talking about, oh, I'm going to punch Satan, I'm going to do this, you, you know, you see that kind of nonsense sometimes in television. You know, that's just crazy stuff. Yeah, because the reality is the Bible tells us we have no power over him in our own right. However, the Bible also tells us we're not to live in fear of him. You know, God has not given us a spirit of fear you know, but a spirit of grace and peace. We are not to live in fear of Satan. And, and oftentimes, we go the other way. Like some people were either far too flippant uh, about their, their, their attitude toward our adversary. But others live petrified of him. And neither of those things are to be the, the way we are to live biblically. In the Bible, he is clearly seen as a defeated foe. He is defeated. He, he, he has nothing for God. 
it's not close. Like, you know, you you watch like the horror movies and stuff like that, and I don't recommend that necessarily. But, you know, people watch that kind of stuff, and and it's always like this nip and tuck battle. You know, in fact, and a lot of times, oh, man, Satan and his people, they can't be beaten. God beat them, and it's not even close. Like, it is not a battle at all. And that's what we see. Just like Michael kicked him out of heaven in chapter 12 and had the ability to throw him out of heaven, we see here in these three verses, look what it says. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him. Hold, hold on, we're coming to that shortly, all right? You, you're catching that from your husband. You're jumping ahead just like he does. <laughs> now hold on to that, too. We're going we're to talk about both of those things. You guys are both, ju- it's that row. It's it. <laughs> That's Anderson just sitting there, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> we'll get to both of those questions here just shortly. Um, you know, It's a picture of Satan being powerless in the hands of this other angel. I think maybe that's part of the reason this angel isn't named. It's an unnamed angel. You know, there's no need for us to to elevate him to any particular height. He is just one of God's angels, and God gives him the authority to do this. And when God gives him the authority, there is nothing Satan can do. He simply grabs him, chains him, throws him in a dungeon, essentially, and locks the door. And Satan can't do a thing. Yeah. Sure. Yep. Yeah. The Bible, yeah, the Bible tells us, you know, resist Satan and he will flee from you. But we forget that so often. You know, the reality is we don't like resisting more often than not. You know, and that's the problem we get ourselves into. Um, let me read something to you from uh, Dr. Grant Osborne, uh, the late Grant Osborne, um, about this. In, this is in the Baker exegetical commentary. I thought he did a nice job of kind of summing this up. He says, the powerlessness of Satan is quite evident. As Michael was able to cast him out of heaven, so this angel has the power to take hold of him and cast him into the dungeon. Then follows a list of his titles that is almost a quotation from the list in chapter 12, verse 9. In this context, the list of names might almost be official, as if the legal sentence is read to the condemned prisoner as he is being thrown into prison. The dragon is guilty because he is the ancient serpent, Leviathan, who introduced chaos and sin into this world. He is the great adversary, the devil or Satan, who accuses the people of God day and night. Therefore, he must be imprisoned. The angel bound him with the chain in the abyss. Uh, This is normal language for arresting, taking hold of a person and and, and taking him away bound. This verb is found in Jesus' thesis statement on the binding of the demonic realm in Mark chapter 3, verse 27, and its parallels. No one, and he he quotes it here, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up or binds, the same verb is here, the strong man. Jesus looked upon his exorcisms as a binding of Satan and his entire demonic realm. This passage builds on that tradition. Several point to Isaiah uh, chapter 24, verses 21 through 22 as background, and he quotes that. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers uh, in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in, in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and punished after many days. This is part of the so-called little apocalypse of Isaiah, chapters 24 through 27, detailing how God will conquer the world. In Isaiah, it is a pantheon of pagan gods uh, that, that is to be brought down, but in, in later Judaism, this was applied to fallen angels. So there's no fight here. 
God is in control, and that's the thing. This passage points squarely to the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God and squarely against Satan's ability to really do anything about it. It uses very common language for an arrest, and he is thrown in essentially a holding tank, a prison for a thousand years, okay? And, and so that's kind of the first real thing that we see here, that he is powerless uh, against this. Second thing, I just want to briefly mention this because sometimes people have kind of pointed this out, like, well, what kind of chain could hold Satan? Well, you know, the obvious thing is, one, the, the, the chain is kind of a metaphor for the arrest, for being uh, chained up. Uh, whether there is a literal chain, we, we don't know, or whether that's just the language that is used for the arrest and, and, and his inability to do anything about it, I, I don't know. But I will say this. If God made the chain, it can hold him. You know, there's no human chain that could hold him. But if God makes a special chain to hold Satan, Satan ain't getting out. And that's really kind of the point. That, that is more to the point of the passage. And so we shouldn't kind of, you know, get too hung up on what kind of chain this is. That, it gets a little silly sometimes. So, but, but, you know, it, it, if, if it's a, a, an actual chain, it'll take care of the business because God made it to do that. And that's all we need to, to really know. Um, now... Uh, the, the purpose. The purpose is so that he can't deceive the nations anymore. Okay? He'll be bound for a thousand years so he cannot deceive the nations. Now, that begs a question that we're not going to answer today. I'll just throw it out there for something to think about for the next two weeks. Who are the nations? Who will be those who are left? There are two basic opinions about who populates the millennial kingdom. One is that it will be nothing but believers that's the case, then who are the nations that are to be deceived? Or the other opinion is it will be believers and also any survivors that are left on the earth at the time of uh, the second coming. We're not going to talk about that today, so don't ask. Two weeks. We're going to go back, like I said, take a look at the Old Testament passages. We're going to try to flesh out what the Bible teaches about the, the, the millennial kingdom, okay? But... Uh, I'll just throw that out there for something to think about over the course of the next two weeks. Uh, God does not want him deceiving the nations anymore, okay? Now we get to Doreen's question, the millennium. There are essentially a couple words, uh, it, you know, in Greek for a thousand years, and they are combined in the, in the phrase millennium, okay? And, and, and so that's where we get that word from, that, that phrase, millennium. Uh, it is mentioned six times in, in these six verses. It, it is, it, it is, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that's the only six times it's mentioned in the entire Bible. Um, you know, at least in, 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 in the book of Revelation. I, I'd have to go look that up. Uh, it is not an often used word, but it is stressed here. One of the great debates, and I mean probably the biggest debate in the entire book of Revelation, the thing that split more people is what is the nature of the millennial kingdom? Is there even a millennial kingdom? Since there is only one passage in Scripture that talks about a millennium, there are many people that say, well, we don't believe it's going to be a literal thousand years. That, and they point out, and, and they are right in this. You know, be patient a second. They are right that oftentimes multiples of 10 and, and, and greater are used throughout the Bible, old and new, as kind of symbols of long periods of time. They are often used symbolically. They are right in that argument. There's no debating that. You will not find a, 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 like, you know, a, a new or Old Testament scholar that will debate that. The question is, is that enough evidence to say this is not a literal thousand-year reign. I don't think so, be, just because the fact that it's six times in six verses, it's stressed a thousand years. There is nothing in the Old Testament that says that, that the, 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 the Christ's kingdom will be a thousand years, nothing. The only time it's said to be a thousand years is right here. 
And that's why there's a debate. It's not like there are a bunch of horrible people that, you know, are trying to, you know, do away with Scripture. That's not the case. There are, are really good biblical Christians on all sides of this, and the reason that they say that is because there's only one place that says a thousand years, and that's in, in Revelation. However, it's said six times in six verses. And the old maxim when it comes to Bible study is if you see something repeated over and over again, especially in a short period of time, you better pay attention. And so it seems God's trying to get our attention here that this is a thousand years. Let me just give you my point of view on this. I definitely believe it will be a thousand year reign of Christ. Now, do I believe it has to be exactly a thousand years? No. If God wants to bring it to the end in like 975 years, he can do that. I won't quibble with him. If he wants to make it last another hundred years, let's say he wants to go 1100, none of us are going to have an argument with him. None of us. Okay? He, he can do that if he wants to. He's God. But I think it's fairly clear if he's saying six times in this such, such a short period of time, you know, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. He'll be loosed after a thousand years. This is what's going to happen for a thousand years. He keeps saying thousand years. He's trying to get our attention, and he probably means a thousand years. You know, I, I, that's... that's my opinion. I'm not the only one, thankfully. If I was up here just giving you my own thing, then you'd have reason to worry. Um, again, let me, let me read something that Dr. Osborne says here. It says, the Old Testament has little explicit commentary on the millennium, but the view of the coming kingdom of God as an earthly reign provided the backdrop for the concept of an earthly millennium. And by the way, he goes on to give at least three passages. There are many, many, many. And like I said, we'll look at those in a couple weeks. We're not going to look at all of them because there's too many, but we're going to look at a bunch of them in two weeks. Um, the early rabbis drew on this and believed in a, a preliminary kingdom. Combining, uh, and and he, he mentions a couple of them here. Uh, combining Deuteronomy 8.3 and Psalm 90.15, Akiba, who was a famous rabbi, okay, Akiba viewed it as a 40-year reign equal to the wilderness wanderings. So there's one rabbi who was thought it would be 40 years. Remember, there's nothing about a 1,000 until we hit New Testament. So one rabbi saw it as 40 because he equated it to the wanderings in the wilderness. That's the smallest one that I've encountered. Um, another rabbi using Micah 7.15 saw a 400-year reign paralleling Israel's stay in Egypt. Jehuda used Deuteronomy 11.21 and saw it as a 4,000-year, okay, 4,000. Um, as a 4,000 years, the same amount of time as from creation to present. Uh, few issues have divided the church for as long a time as this. For the church in the first three, three centuries, for the first 300 years, had extensive debates over Chileism, which basically just means it's, it's another way of saying a thousand years. Uh, and it gives examples of the writings who support this. Uh, writings of Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. They were all people who believed in a thousand year uh, reign of Christ, okay, a thousand year kingdom. Um, the view of a literal thousand years. Um, thousand-year reign of Christ, partly due to an overly materialistic and sensual view adopted by some in the early church. An ex example he gives is a Gnostic teacher named Cerinthus. Uh, you know, so some who took that view of, of, of a literal thousand-year kingdom started to warp it into some non-Christian, non-biblical ways of thinking. So he says, largely because of that, it kind of started to go out of, uh, you know, out of favor. It, it, uh, leaders began to turn away from such a literal portrait. Due to the nearly universal acceptance of Augustine's amillennial position, the issue was put to rest for the next 1,200 years. So the one who came up with the idea of amillennialism was Augustine. Okay, and, and like he said, largely the leaders of the time were reacting to what they, to kind of some of the people who believed in a thousand years were kooks. And so they started moving away from that, not because of any biblical argument, because they didn't want to be associated with 
you know, kind of the kooks. You know, and so Augustine came up with the idea of, of amillennialism, and that kind of won the day for the next 1,200 years. The debate, it, uh, it reopened with the pietist movement of the 1700s, with post-millennialism amongst the Puritans, and the dispensational Plymouth Brethren movement of the 1800s. So the pietists in the 1700s, the post-millennials uh, with the Puritans, and then the dispensationalists in, amongst the, the Plymouth Brethren kind of brought back the debate, kind of salvaged the argument from the first 300 years of the church's existence, and it became a debate again amongst uh, Christians. Since then, three positions have often sorely divided the Christian groups. To take them in chronological order, premillennialism believes that Christ will return to earth, destroy the evil forces, and reign here for a thousand years. This period will end with the rebellion and final destruction of Satan, followed by the final judgment and the, uh, the beginning of the future age. Amillennialism holds that, that there will uh, be no literal earthly reign of Christ following the second coming. They say his reign is now during the church age. And, and, and by the way, please don't mistake their position for not being serious about Scripture because they do very much believe in the reign of Christ. They just believe he is reigning right now in heaven, that he kind of constantly reigns since Christ went back to heaven. So they are not saying that, you know, Christ isn't reigning. You know, we have to be a little bit more gracious. They, they do believe he reigns. They just don't believe it will be an, an earthly reign. So they spiritualize all those Old Testament passages, okay? That's the biggest issue I have with it is you have to spiritualize everything. As you're going to see in two weeks, man, there's a lot of Old Testament passages that talk about it, and you have to kind of wipe them all away as nothing but kind of, you know, spiritualization. Um, they, they believe that it, uh, it's symbolic and descri describes the situation during the church age between the advents of Christ. Uh, Postmillennialism argues that the thousand-year period will be a time of triumph of the gospel and a period of peace that will precede the second coming. There's a great deal of um, commonality between amillennialism and postmillennialism. Uh, you know, you could almost argue that postmillennialism is a, it's a, 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 a overly optimistic view that the church will be so triumphant uh, in its last thousand years and, and, you know, Christ will remove all the obstacles and, and the church will be essentially victorious. The problem is they kind of constitute the, the, the church uh, is more in focus than Christ is, though they would say Christ is reigning through his church. Uh, but, but, that is actually probably at this point maybe the smallest of, of, of the three. It, it kind of rose up amongst the Puritans. Probably the vast majority of the world, is, of the Christian world, is amillennial. Um, and and premillennialism, as he had kind of mentioned there, has kind of come back to the forefront just like it was probably the strongest in the first 300 years. It is now gaining ground uh, over the last uh, several hundred years. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of, that gives you kind of an idea of what these positions are and kind of what is going up and what is, is, is coming down. Um, yes. Yep. The amillennials spiritualize that and say that's just language used to stress the fact that God is reigning in heaven. Um, and, and the postmillennialists will do the same thing, but they would put their emphasis on the church is the one who is victorious here, not Christ. Christ through his church, but the church is the one who's kind of being symbolized here. The premillennialist says, look, if you, if you were... Like if someone dropped down from Mars today and just read this, which one would you believe? It would be premillennialism easily because that's what it says. And that's premillennialist, that's kind of like their main argument. That's why I would consider myself definitely a premillennialist because that's what scripture says. Now, I, I perfectly agree that there's times that it can be used symbolically. We see that in the New Testament, but... Kind of the adage is, if, 
You, if it, it can be taken literally, take it literally. Whatever you can take literally, take it as literally as you can take it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that would probably let me give you a uh, let me give me a short answer because that would require like a a a, a class on kind of historical theology. Um, but some of this does go back to the time of the early church when. You know, look, you had the church expanding extremely fast. The apostles at that point are dead. After the year 100 and John is gone, uh, as long as the apostles were there, they were kind of like the rock. You know, people could go to the apostles if there was a problem. All of a sudden, things are spreading. It's spreading out into the pagan world. People are getting saved like crazy, but a lot of them are, are, are taking their pagan beliefs right into Christianity with them. And with that, as, as Dr. Osborne pointed out, came a lot of craziness, a lot of the Gnostic teachers were, were kind of on the scene by that point, and they were starting to take a very materialistic, very sensual kind of view of, of that thousand-year reign. Uh, you know, boy, yeah, we're going to look at all the great stuff you know, we're going to have and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of the early church fathers like, looked at this and they're like, oh my gosh, like, this is so warping what Christianity really is about. We need to kind of back away. And, and, and along came Augustine, who was one of the great thinkers of his time. Nobody debates that. He was also considered by some of the other church fathers as a, as a bit of a, uh, how would I put it? I, I'm trying to think of the way that uh, John Chrysostom put it. Um, he was an innovator. Uh, he, it, sometimes he was known for unnecessary innovations. Uh, they were great ways to explain something in ways that nobody had thought about it before, but sometimes he could kind of slip over into kind of creating things that really weren't always completely accurate. Uh, and, and that's, you know, they were fighting heresy and they were trying to do their best. I don't, you know, I, I'm not super like hard on them because I can't imagine being in their position. And, and, and they were doing their best, and, and largely they were also super optimistic about, you know, the role that the church would play. It was right about the same time as the birth of what we consider Catholicism today, and that kind of, uh, you know, centralizing everything into, like, the power of the church, which, again, I understand why they did that, because they were fighting all these far-flung, crazy ideas, and if you want to fight that, you centralize things, and you, and you put it all under, like, the, the auspices of a few people, the, the bishops, and, and that's what they were trying to do, and they weren't trying to do it to lead people astray. They were trying to do it to, to in their eyes, save historic Christianity, but the problem is when you do the, some of those things, sometimes you go too far, and then you end up with problems later on down the line. So I, I get you. Like it's a, it's a, it's. How do you get that narrative out of that? It's, it seems so clear. It's like, yeah, man, God just says this. Like, why is it that we don't believe that? Um, you know. But they had, they had, you know, real reasons that they were trying to fight. It's just sometimes, you know, you you cause more muddiest. Let's put it this way: they muddied the waters more than they cleared them. You know, it. it but you know, they probably fought what they wanted to fight at the time. So, uh, hopefully that gives you a short, like I said, we, we'd have to study like a, a whole class on kind of historic theology, which by the way, I would really encourage people, get a good book in Christian history and a good book on the development of theology and spend some time, if you really want to understand this stuff, um, it is a very worthwhile study. I'll just throw that out there, uh, you know, I, I've taught it before. I'm not going to teach it anytime soon. It was like three or four years. No, no, probably more than that. Five years ago, maybe. Last time I taught this, and I'm not ready to bite that off for probably like another decade. So, you know, just, but I would just recommend do it on your own. Uh, it's, it's a great study. Um, the last thing about verse, verses one through three. Why set him free? And this kind of gets to another one of you guys' questions. Why set him free? There's two kind of classical answers given to this. One is that 
you're going to have a, a thousand years of people being born, uh, new. I mean, there, there's nothing that says life won't go on like normal during the, the millennium. So you're going to have another opportunity for essentially mankind to be tested and cho- either choose to follow God or not. Okay, so that's one answer. The other answer is that it drives home the guilt of guilty humanity, especially if people live in, uh, that, that were not believers enter the, 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 the millennium. And again, we'll talk about that in two weeks. We don't have time to talk about that today. But if that is the case, then this is essentially driving home their guilt. Some may come to Christ during the, the, the tribulation or during the millennium. All may not. And now they've had a thousand years of, of the, 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 the reign of, of Christ, and they're given kind of one last chance to, to you know, either stay with him and follow him or drive home their guilt that was always there. So those are the two kind of classical views, Perry. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was saying with the first one. Yeah, you're going to have like people born. Uh, those are the two kind of classic views uh, that people are. There's going to be a new whole generations. Actually, Osborne calculated at 14 lifetimes. You're going to have 14 lifetimes of people being, you know, coming onto the scene, uh, and so they will have to make up their mind. Uh, that is one of the two great classic views. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, heck, make it quick. <laughs> yeah. Now, we're not talking about necessarily the people that went to heaven having kids. We're talking about people that were alive on the earth at the time of the tribulation. Well, they'll be able to intermingle, they'll talk and things like that, but, but I see no evidence that they're going to have children or anything. You're jumping to way far out places. Uh, you know, it, it, it you know, yeah. No, no, no yeah, two, two, that's the way to see it. Two different groups, you know. Yep, same earth, yep. Yeah. Um. To, yes, to wait, wait till two weeks. Wait till two weeks. We've got to shut this down now. We do not have time. It, we're, we're past due. Glenn's going to start giving me the evil eyeball here soon. Um, in fact, uh, you guys can kind of dismiss yourself as you, as you, as you leave. Uh, but yeah, in two weeks, we'll finish the last three verses, and then we'll look at the millennial kingdom, all right? <laughs>